0: Well, good morning, Cornerstone. One more time. Good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. Joy to be with all of you this morning. Gallows together to worship God and study His Word together. Uh we announced our laying the foundation um uh endeavor to you. We'll share uh with greater detail in our communion service. The knowledge that I use is uh in my own life. My wife and I were married ten years ago and uh I was a poor student in seminary, and my wife was a first-year teacher. She was still getting a credential, but teaching as well at LA Unified. We got married in 97, and we moved into a two-bedroom, small two-bedroom, like house apartment in Lakewood. After about six months, we we wanted to uh, consider uh, buying a townhome, uh, grow roots, establish our family, potentially grow our family, and want to get established in a location so my wife and I thought, worked through the finances, and we could make the mortgage payments with relative comfort, but it was a down payment that was a great difficulty. We had to come up with about $4,000 uh, to afford a townhome, a foreclosed down, t- townhome that was, uh, that was a mess, but it was good for us. And uh, for us back then, $4,000 might as well have been $4 million. I mean, that was money that, that was just too much for us. But we thought it was wise. We thought it was good for our family. We thought it'd be glorifying to the Lord. So we began to, uh, tighten our belts, right? We began to trim our budget. Instead of getting a large diet coke, I get a medium diet coke, right? That kind of thing. Instead of a super size, get a regular size. Instead of serene, I don't know, going to the salon for a haircut, I'd cut her hair. Uh, <laughs> not that drastic, but you know what I mean. We'd cut corners scrimped and saved. After a year, we scrounged together $4,000 to uh, put a down payment for our townhome. If you guys were there right here in Anaheim, um, we got a low, low place. And I didn't tell her after, until after we moved that it was only two blocks from Motel Row, a very uh, kind of a difficult place, you know, a lot of crime and so forth happening there. But I didn't tell her we we're so close until we, after we moved. So she felt safe while we were there. But after we left, she told me I should have told her earlier. (laughs) But that's how we got in. And that's what we're trying to do as as a church as well. Um, We can definitely afford uh, maybe monthly payments for a place. But it's a down payment. That's very difficult. So as a church, we're calling our family members to tighten belts, scrimp and save and uh, trim their budget so that we might come together as a church to consider God's will for a building a location for us in the future. We have we're not locked into a building, we're not locked into any land or location. We're just purely seeking God's will and whatever he provides, we will be joyful, we'll be grateful, we'll be thankful. It's a great opportunity for us. I always long for this kind of um barn raising kind of uh event at at a church, you know, in the Midwest, people get together, they spend like a weekend and they they do a barn raising, right? They. They do their woodworking, they do their plumbing, electrical. Everybody comes together and they spend like a few days working together. They grow in fellowship and all of that uh, together. Now, we can't do that because no one has those skills here in Southern California, right? Uh, if we were to do a barn raising, it would collapse next week and it'd be very dangerous. Um, and uh, we don't have skills, we don't have the wherewithal, we don't have time, we're so busy. But this is an opportunity where we can do this. Come together and give of ourselves and our families. And our prayer is, in the years to come, we'll look back and God will use this as a means for His gospel, means for His glory. And we'll look back and we'll praise God that how God used ordinary means, ordinary people and ordinary means to accomplish supernatural ends, which is proclamation of the gospel, to edify the saints, to save the lost, all to the glory of God. So more information will come up during our communion service. Um, most of you know the, the pastors, elders, or pastors, and leaders of our church came back from uh, together for the gospel conference in Louisville, Kentucky this past week. We were there for three nights or four days, or four ni- three nights and four days of uh, learning under these godly men. It was a tremendous time of uh, sitting under these. Uh, students of the Word, teachers of the Bible, and we were greatly impacted by their ministry of teaching to us. It was so sobering to see these men who had given their lives to the gospel ministry, who have given their lives to Christ's church and ministry of the Word. It was so impactful just by the testimony of their lives. To see R.C. Sproul, he was so weak in his body, he had a stroke a few years ago, that he could not stand any longer. They propped him up in a wooden uh, stool, so he sat through his preaching, though his body was weak, his uh, spiritual power is great. And what a powerful example to us, the ministry of the Word, Pastor MacArthur preached as well. I think he's uh, early 70s, so over 40 years pastoring his church, preaching the Word. And um, we understand and I understand what how incredible that is. Ministering for 10 years, that's incredible, 20 years, that's hard. Preaching for 40 years, that's a miracle. That's incredible. That's supernatural. And all these years, he has not deviated from the gospel. He has not gone astray. All these men have not gone astray from the Word of God. They're faithfully uh, explicating the Word of God for the benefit of the church and the lost. And so for us to just be in the same convention center with them and to hear them and to see, see them model these truths was a great, great blessing to us. We got to spend a lot of time together, a lot of food, a lot of joking around. We had an impromptu bowling tournament on one of the evenings, and our team lost by less than a pin, right? So I, I demanded a recount, but they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, you know, submit. So I was, <laughs> I was a little bitter. I can't believe it, a point six pin, right? Not even a pin, less than a pin, and we lost, so I demand a... You know, rematch, and I'm gonna go practicing tonight. So if you want to join me, and some of you guys saw me on that uh, YouTube thing on chalies..com or .org, and uh, we're just sitting there late to our meeting, late to one of the sessions, and they actually asked Francis if he wanted to share, and it was like persecution. So I, Francis like, here's our pastor, <laughs> have him do it. So I know if there's persecution arises in America, I'm not gonna count on Francis to my back. He's going to call me out. He's the man. He's the, he's, he's the one you want. He's responsible. So I, I shared a little bit. And like next day, I, I regret. I left something out. I, I forgot to say. I should have said something. Not about my wife or kids. I should have said, Go Lakers. <laughs> man, that would have been so awesome. Like right in the middle, like sticking Go Lakers. Then they can't, you know, edit it out. And so... I choked next time. Next time. We'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Continue our study. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We've discovered thus far verses 1 through 7 contain no commands. No commands whatsoever. Starting with verse 8. Through the rest of the chapter, we find five commands that Paul gives specifically to Timothy. Five commands to Timothy, and they apply to each of us. The first command is found in verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, Timothy. They're going to shame you. They're going to consider it a disgrace to proclaim the gospel of Christ. This shameful message about this crucified Lord. They're going to try to intimidate and humiliate you, but do not feel shame. If you feel shame, that is misplaced. In fact, it is honor. It is a privilege. This message, this testimony about our Lord, it's beautiful. It's a gift. So Timothy, do not be ashamed. The second command is, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. And that is the subject of our study this morning. Do not be ashamed of the testimony. And it goes also to do not, be ash- do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Now this letter was written around A.D. 66 or 67 A.D. During this time, state persecution was rampant uh, in the land. Being a Christian meant not only universal criticism, But persecution, imprisonment, and even death. To be associated with the Lord meant persecution. But also, association with a fellow Christian, let alone a Christian leader, was also costly. We find out later on in chapter 1, like men like Phygelus and Hermogenes, verse 15, avoided Paul. They denied any association with Paul. All right, they were ashamed of him because they were ashamed of Christ, ashamed of the gospel, and they didn't want to suffer. They didn't want to be persecuted and be arrested. So when Paul was in need of them, they fled and disavowed any relationship with Paul. Paul commands Timothy to don't do this. Do not be ashamed of me. Now, we have to ask this question, why this command? Because at face value, it sounds a little bit self-serving. It sounds a little bit prideful or self-centered. Paul, you are the worst of all sinners according to your own words. You should be ashamed of yourself. How much more should the church? The Christian faith is not about making much of man or Christ's servants. The Christian faith is about making much of Christ. So how could you put... On the equal level, not be ashamed of the gospel and not be ashamed of me. Paul, it doesn't make sense. It seems to contradict your own statements in your letters. It sounds like Paul, prison life has gotten to Paul. And is causing him to make a serious error in judgment by commanding Timothy to not be ashamed of him. I believe there are three reasons why Paul gave this Timothy gave this command to Timothy. Three reasons why. First reason is that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uniquely represented Jesus Christ. He was Christ's unique emissary. His representative. He stood for Christ. So when Paul spoke, Christ was speaking. When Paul acted in his official position, Christ was acting. Christ was with him. It's, it has always been this way. Prophets of God, who spoke for God. However they were treated, that is how they were treating God. That is how they were treating the Lord. You cannot separate God and His prophet, His mouthpiece. There was a direct connection, direct tie, between God Himself and the person that He appointed to speak on His behalf. Let me read to you just Exodus, some passages from Scripture. Exodus 16:8, When the Israelites were grumbling against Moses. Remember, they were complaining. Imagine 2.1 million people complaining against you and blaming you for getting lost. Right? You ever have a car full of people and you get lost and they blame you and how upsetting, right? How difficult, how... Embittered, angry, you get at these people. Imagine 2.1 million people complaining because you're lost, it's hot, there's no food, and there's lacking water. And God says to Moses, Exodus 16:8, "They are not gr- grumbling against you, but against the Lord." Moses, don't take this personally. When they are grumbling against you, it is me that they are grumbling against. First Samuel 8:4 through 7. Samuel was dejected because Israel asked for a king. Samuel had told them that he's a prophet of God and he will lead them. And the people said, all other nations, they have this warrior king who leads their men into battle. We want such a king. This Ark of the Covenant is not enough for us. We want a king. The Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, Samuel. But know this, It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Samuel, know that ultimately when they rejected you, they are rejecting me. That was true in the Old Testament and also true in the New. Because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In terms of not being ashamed, Paul rightly placed himself on the same level as the gospel. Same level, because Christ told the apostles in Matthew 10:14, if anyone does not receive you, they're not receiving me. If anyone rejects you, know that they are rejecting me. Right. That's the authority that Jesus Christ himself gave to all the apostles. If they listen to you, they're listening to, to me if they are not rece- recipient of you, if they're not receiving you, if they reject you, they are rejecting me. Therefore, get out of that city, right? brush off the dust on your clothes, on the sandals, on the bottom of your sandals, and turn away, because they have rejected the Lord. So in the official capacity of Paul, he rightly said this. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 Whoever disregards this, meaning His instructions, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Paul was not being pompous, he was not being arrogant or prideful, he was not courting delusions of grandeur, he was speaking rightly. If anyone was rejecting Paul's doctrines, Paul's instructions, they were not rejecting Paul, because these weren't ideas that he created in his mind. These weren't truths that he formulated in his heart. These were truths that he received from Christ that he was passing on. So anyone who rejected Paul's instructions, they were rejecting Paul's Lord, Paul's Savior, Paul's God. We all remember Acts chapter 5, right? Acts chapter 5, how uh, the early church were so generous, so filled with the Holy Spirit that they were Exulting in the gospel, exulting in fellowship, and abounding in service and ministry to one another. Among them, there was a leader named Barnabas. And he was a rich person. He had some land. And he sold that land. And with all the proceeds, he laid it at the apostles' feet. There was a couple in the church, <coughs> Ananias and Sapphira. They saw this. And they sin in their flesh were envious of the attention that barnabas got the authority and leadership and the praise that he received so they conspired to do the same but they conspired to say that they're giving all from the proceeds but only give a portion but to get the praise from the church they said they were giving 100 percent, and they also laid at the apostles feet now we remember the story right As soon as Ananias did this, Apostle Peter, has Satan so filled your heart to lie to God? And at that moment, he was struck, and he died in the spot. Three hours later, Ananias, I mean, Sapphira, his wife, died as well. Now, these kinds of things, I don't want to scare anyone, these kinds of things do not happen today, right? We don't read like on Christianity today, wow, it was a tough Sunday today, Right? (laughs) Like 1,200 people died because they lied in the church. And, you know, I don't think Koreans would do so well. (laughs) You know, if if these kind of things, you know, happen in the church today, uh, we wouldn't do so well. Now, why is it not happening? Because apostles are no longer around. Apostles, the last one was John, 1895. Peter said, you have not lied to man, you have lied to God. When you have come to the apostles and you lied to us, you are lying directly to God, offending His holiness. And therefore, God's reacting in judgment. Right. Because they are representatives of Christ. We have no apostles today. That is why it no longer occurs. Paul rightly told Timothy not being shameful of Christ. His gospel, and not being ashamed of me, Christ's representative, is on equal level. That is why, first reason why he gave that command. Second reason for this command is the unity that exists between Christians and Jesus Christ. The unity that exists between Christians and Jesus Christ. Paul is not merely saying, don't be ashamed of me because I'm an apostle. Because you could indirectly say then, okay, Timothy, you can be ashamed of Titus. He's not an apostle, right? So if you see him on the street, he got arrested, like pretend you don't know him. It's okay, right? Or other Christians, you know, they're suffering, ignore them. But me, I'm special. I'm an apostle. You can't be ashamed of me, but you can be ashamed of other Christians. No. Not just as an apostle, but all Christians. Because each Christian, the church, we are the body of Christ. We are his members. There is an inextricable un- unity between Christ and His people. Um, Acts chapter 9, when Paul, where Saul was persecuting the church, and Christ came to him on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You're, you're hurting my people, and that's me. He doesn't separate himself in any way with with the church, because we are in Christ. First Corinthians twelve, twelve and thirteen. For just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body are one body, so it is with Christ. We are Christ's members. Members of Christ, Ephesians five thirty. We are members of his body. All right. So all Christians represent Christ because we are in him. But not only that, um, there is even a closer tie between Christ and those Christians who are undergoing suffering. So for regular Christians, there is a tie, Christians and Christ. But to those who are undergoing trial, suffering, and especially if they're suffering for the gospel, there is a greater unity between Christ and Christ and these Christians. Turn with me to Matthew 25, 31 through 40. 25, 31 through 40. A parable that we are somewhat somewhat, um, familiar with. 2531, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, and the goats, but the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on, the, on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he accounts the fruits of their salvation, the evidences of their true faith in Christ. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did, when did I feed you? I don't, I mean, I would remember feeding Jesus Christ, right? I would remember giving water to you, giving you a drink. When did we welcome you into our home, clothe you? When were you sick and I visited you? When were you in prison and I came and ministered to you and prayed for you? Verse 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So right off the bat, we know this is not a call to social activism. It's not a call to do compassion ministry. We should, but not not according to this passage. He's talking about my brothers, meaning Christians. And whatsoever you do to the least of my people, you're doing it to me. Right. So when you see a Christian who's suffering, a Christian who is naked, who is hungry, who is in prison, and you help him or her, Christ says, I am there. You're doing it to me. You are serving me. You are caring for me. You are helping me. All, right. All Christians, but doubly so if you're a Christian who is going through suffering. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not in a palace. I'm not in a five-star hotel. And, And Timothy, will you come and not be ashamed of me? I'm not in a position of power or glory. I'm in a dungeon, chained to the wall, treated as a criminal, and you must not be ashamed of me. Because whatsoever you do to me, Timothy, you are doing to Christ. And for your own soul's sake, I want you to be on the right. So do not be ashamed of me. The third reason, and Paul gives us this reason, he says, because I'm a prisoner of Christ. Nor of me, his prisoner. This is how he described himself when he was in house arrest earlier in Rome. Ephesians 3.1 I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.1, a prisoner for the Lord. Philemon 1.1, prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was saved by God's free will. Paul is saying, look, I didn't volunteer to become a prisoner of Christ. No one volunteers to go to prison. He, in his sovereign choice he knew me he chose me he saved me he called me he made me a minister he called me to suffer he called me to preach and that is why i'm in this physical prison because i'm in the spiritual prison of christ and i am compelled constrained not by physical chains i'm not kept here by these physical bars but what compels me what constrains me what keeps me in this prison 2 Corinthians 5.14 is Christ's love compels me. Right. His eternal love has made me his prisoner. So Timothy, don't blame me. Don't fault me. It's not my choice. Right. They might say, Paul, man, I, I knew it happened to you. We told you don't go to Jerusalem. Why do you have to take it so far? Why do you take it so radically? Right, you have to preach the gospel all the time. You should have been a little more pragmatic, Paul. You should have been a little, little more secret-sensitive. Cut out the offensive parts, right? Kind of know your place in the Roman society and preach wisely, graciously, and, and, and pragmatically. Paul says, don't blame me. That's not my choice. I am the Lord's prisoner. Everything I've said is because of Christ. And everything I do is because of Christ. And you are ashamed of me, then you are ashamed of Christ because He is the one who chose. It's His his sovereign will has done all of this. I mean, We've seen this in um, the past with uh, prophets of God. I always go to Jeremiah 1 where God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you, appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's what happened to Paul. Acts 22.10 He said, What shall I do, Lord, on the road to Damascus? Lord said to him, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Galatians 1.15 But when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace. Before I was born. Timothy, I had no choice in this matter. Verse right. Timothy 2.7 For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, Go down to verse 11, chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. An important um, perspective for Paul. God's sovereignty. So based upon these three reasons, Paul commanded Timothy, do not be ashamed of Paul because his apostleship because he was a Christian who was suffering for the gospel and because he is who he is and he was where he was all because of God's sovereign choice. That's the first, second commandment. Third command is second part of verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony. Do not be ashamed of Paul. But instead of being ashamed our response must be share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, it struck me this week, starting this passage, that I understand now far better, I understand far better now why Paul gave that, gave that reminder in verse 7 that we have not received the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sober judgment, self-control. Right. In light of verse 8, we understand verse 7. He, he reminded Timothy to set aside fear because he was doing prep work. He was preparing Timothy for what he was about to say. He was strengthening and steadying Timothy's heart so that he might receive these three commands. He knew what will hinder Timothy to obey these commands was fear right? fear, cowardice, anxiety, fear, if left unchecked, will grow and paralyze a believer and cause a believer to be ashamed of christ's testimony right that was Peter right? and before Pontius Pilate, when Christ was being persecuted, Peter didn't check his heart. He was ashamed of Christ. If fear unchecked, if not dealt a death blow, if not mortified, will paralyze a believer and cause him or her to be ashamed of Christian leaders. And fear will cause us to run away from suffering. Right? Because, uh, we lose control when we're suffering. We we are submitted to God's sovereignty and the ordained authorities of persecution of this world. Therefore, fear compels us to run away. That is why Paul said, Timothy, we have not received the spirit of fear, but power, love, and self-control. Therefore, Do not be ashamed. Gospel, me, instead, share in suffering for the gospel. It's a single word in the Greek. Sun kako Together, evil, suffer. Suffer together with me, this evil. For Timothy... And for believers, for first century believers who were reading this letter, persecution was not a theoretical idea. It's so different for us, 21st century Orange County, California Christians, reading Second Timothy, and for the first readers of this letter, for Timothy reading this letter, for them, it was not just this, you know, persecution wasn't like Christian biographies. It, it wasn't um, reading books or articles or hearing about prayer prayer requests halfway around the world, for them, it was a reality outside their front door. It was a daily reality. For anyone who confesses Christ, they were unsynagogued. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. Removed. Expelled from uh, the Jewish community, from their relatives, from their family. Ostracized. Persecuted by family members. To confess Christ meant state persecution. It was an illegal religion. So any association with Christ and Christians meant persecution. Hebrews 10 talks about this. Imprisonment, seizure of possessions, separated from family, and even having your life being taken away. Now think about this. This is truth this is verified by church history and it is so radical for us so different for us you know it, i remember being a college student and be a christian and say yeah all right if i was arrested and separated from my wife i would stand for christ and if i was arrested and uh i was in prison i couldn't see my kids i would stand for christ and if they were to take my life wow man, I'll give glory to God. I'll be just like Stephen, right? I'll stand before them and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, right? And I would, you know, make this gesture and go down for the glory of Christ. But think about it. It's so different now because I have a wife. Before it was just theory, like with some wife, right? (laughs) I would not see her. It's okay. I don't know who she is. But now... I'll be separated from Seren, right? I will be removed from my wife. And she'll be removed from me. Before, it was just theoretical children. But now, their names, Elizabeth, Emma, Ethan, and Eleanor. And they would not see me for years. Maybe their whole lifetime. And if I get out, they'll be 25 years old, or 20 years old. Dad, you weren't there for all these birthdays, all these events, you weren't there because you were arrested for Christ. And now that my life is established, when you're in college, you don't have anything. When you're in high school, who cares? Take my life. I don't have anything, right? <laughs> but now, well, I have a life. I like my life. I like my family. And to have that taken away, it's a wholly different thing. For believers reading this, that was their reality. That was what it meant for them. And yet, Paul was calling Timothy to not shrink back not to compromise. Not to love wife, children, and life more than Christ. He was calling him, though he knew it all, knew what it caused. It wasn't theory for Paul. It wasn't theory for Timothy. For all the believers, it wasn't theory. It was a reality. But Paul called them to this, to, this, to pay this heavy price. And Paul paid it. We find out later in Hebrews. Timothy went to prison. He paid that price. And believers throughout church history and even to this day have paid and are paying that price. Read a few weeks ago uh, a chapter by Nate Saint's son. How uh, he remembers hearing how his dad was martyred in Ecuador for the gospel. He was five years old. He lost his hero and he writes what it what it meant to lose his hero at five years old and to grow up without a dad. But he was suffering for the gospel and he rejoices in Christ. That is what Paul called Timothy, Paul calls us, and it is to be a reality. Now, we gotta look at this command a little longer. There are five, you know, angles to this command, five um Five perspectives, five additional insights to consider with this command. We must consider that this command started with Christ. This example began with the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and He suffered. John 15, if they hated you, remember they hated me first. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Right. He suffered the reproach, the shame of the cross. First Peter 2, 20 through 23. And Peter was an eyewitness. He saw this for himself. That's why Peter, so Peter writes, when you do good and suffer, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was, when he was suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 4.1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude. So the first, we need to understand, that Christ modeled this for us. So, because Christ suffered, and He calls us to follow, the road of discipleship, must include suffering. Must include suffering. There's no other way, to follow Christ, apart from suffering, for the gospel, and suffering with fellow Christians. Right? If anyone espouses any other road, they are selling something. They want something from you. It is not consistent with the Scriptures. Because Christ Himself modeled suffering, causes suffering. Secondly, it is joint suffering. It is joint suffering with fellow Christians. Paul is an excellent leader. He's modeling it here. He's a man of integrity. He's not calling Timothy... To do anything that he himself is not doing. He's not being a hypocrite. He's not living one way and calling Timothy to do another. He is doing it and he's calling Timothy to do the exact same thing. Christ said of this of the Pharisees. It says, Practice what they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they preach but they do not practice. That's hypocritical leadership. That's false religion. That's binding burdens on you that they themselves are not carrying. I have this illustration. Um, you guys know Hugo Chavez. He's the president of Venezuela. And uh, he was uh, denouncing capitalism and promoting socialism. And the whole country's about denouncing... Um, Capitalism of the West. and So they had this press conference with their finance minister, Pedro Carreno. And this press conference is actually on YouTube. I saw it and I read the article. And he was denouncing capitalism of the United States in the West. Right? Promoting socialism. And a female reporter interrupted, Isn't it contradictory to denounce capitalism when you have a tie from Louis Vuitton and shoes from Gucci, right? Did I pronounce that right? Uh, Gucci. <laughs> I never bought it, so I don't know. All right. Isn't it hypocritical of you to tell your people, right, and promote socialism, deny capitalism, but you are wearing a $1,000 tie and your shoes are worth a couple thousand dollars? Isn't that hypocritical? What? Even the world could discern hypocrisy with integrity. right? Likewise, how much more the church? Our Lord, He modeled suffering. Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. First Corinthians 11.1 one, He followed Christ and suffered for Christ. So Christian leaders, we must do the same. As Christian leaders, we must imitate. There's so much to imitate in the life of Christ. His holiness, Christian love, devotion to truth, But the one we are most prone to leave out is suffering. Suffering and sacrificing. We are hypocritical leaders if we do not follow Christ and Paul in this way. And you are hypocritical Christians if you do not follow Christ and Paul in this way. Paul's calling to us is both doctrine and life. Right doctrine and right life. All the while understanding suffering is different for each of us. Right? There is no one way to suffer for each of us. It's unique. And we must keep our eyes on the cross and ourselves, not on others. Remember John 21, when Christ told Peter he'll be martyred for the faith. What did Peter say? What's going to happen to John? Right? Well, you say, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. Okay, I'm happy long as uh, John <laughs> suffers and dies too. Right? And Christ said, Peter, what is it to you? What happens to John? You follow me. All of us, we must not look to others. Look to Christ. Look to the scriptures. And how is Christ calling you to suffer? And in your heart, you might grumble. This guy sitting next to me, he's not suffering at all. Ah, this girl next to me, she's living a charmed life. right? Living in the world, living in Christ. So not fair, Christ says. Who, what is it to you? What your fellow believers do? You follow me. Thirdly, it must be voluntary. It must be voluntary suffering. That's one, it's one thing to undergo suffering that is not under your control. <coughs> <clears throat> illness, natural disaster, loss of a loved one. This is not what Paul is calling us to. He's calling us to volunteer to suffer. Fourthly, it is specific suffering. It is suffering for the gospel. There is a distinction. Suffering in the gospel and suffering for the gospel. I remember many years ago, we are in a Bible study. This guy came to me and said, Oh, how he's suffering for Christ because he got a traffic ticket. And oh, how it's difficult for him as a Christian. And I said, brother, that's not suffering for Christ. First of all, you broke the law. You deserve that ticket. I've seen I've been in your car. Man, you should have gotten five tickets by now, right? Second of all, non-Christians get tickets as well. That's not suffering for Christ. Now, you can suffer in Christ while you're going through difficulties. When you suffer through illness or loss of family members, you experience personal tragedy, and you suffer as a Christian, in that manner of hope where you have joy, you have contentment, you have you practice faith, you're praising God, you're confessing sin, you're serving others in the midst of your suffering, that is suffering as a Christian and that's noble. That is honoring to Christ. But that is not suffering for Christ. Suffering Christ, for Christ, is a whole another category where you suffer for the gospel. You suffer for Christ's honor and Christ's word. And when you and I do that, there's a whole different level of reward. Whole different level of honor and, and pleasure of God. Glorifying God. Mark 10, 29 and 30 if anyone leaves house, brothers, sisters, mothers, father, or children, or land for, the, for my sake and for the gospel, he will receive a hundredfold in return. Matthew five ten eleven Blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are others. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. You should rejoice and be glad, Christ said, for great is your reward in heaven. So when we suffer in Christ, there is reward. When we suffer for Christ, reward times a hundred, hundredfold reward. Finally, we are to suffer empowered by God Himself. Empowered Empowered by God. Last phrase of verse 8, by the power of God. What is the power of God? We should know this. What is the power of God? Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunamis, the dynamite, the power of God. We are to suffer, not by the power of self-will, not by power of the flesh, but by the gospel of God. We are to endure suffering for the gospel by depending on the message of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? The gospel gives us the spiritual strength to endure. Gives us power to fight and stand in the fight. The gospel enables us to resist the temptation to lose heart and lose hope. Helps us to fight against the desire to run away. Temptation to give in to our worst fears and run. That is why, starting with verse 9, Paul articulates the gospel. We'll study that next week. This is how we are to suffer by trusting in the gospel of God's sovereign grace. Well, closing thoughts, a few applications for us to uh, consider as we close our time understand that these, that these commands were given to Paul, to Timothy, over 2000, around 2,000 years ago. So principles are directly toward him, but we can draw universal principles for us, and we can apply these truths for us. So for Timothy, it meant, don't be ashamed of Paul. For us, what does it mean? It can mean, one application is, don't be ashamed of your church leaders. Right? Don't be ashamed of me. Right? Don't be ashamed of Bob. Right? Don't be ashamed of your flock shepherd. Right? In your heart, in your behavior, in your attitude. I told you last week when I was a youth student, I think in ninth grade, went to church. My youth pastor was this you know, short guy, thick accent, thick glasses. Only thing cool about him, Kelly remembers, was he played guitar. Only thing cool other than that, uncool, right? My first thought, honestly, was, wow, what a loser, man. Is this is his life, right? And you know what happened? Six years later, I was a youth pastor at the same church, <laughs> preaching at the same pulpit, leading, leading that same church, serving that same church. I was ashamed because I was not a Christian. As a Christian, right, our application is to not be ashamed of your leaders, don't despise us. Don't look down on us. Don't treat your elders, pastors, and flock shepherds lightly. Ah, you know, what does he know? Right? Oh man, he's always just accountability, accountability. Right? Oh, so many meetings. He wants to get together. Right. Don't view our ministries, our teachings, our counsels with a flippant attitude. Take to heart our lives. Take to heart our examples. Take to heart our instructions and our counsels. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. Paul wrote, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So, clear instructions, clear applications for us. Respect, honor the leaders who labor among you, who are over you, who admonish you. Consider them and give honor to whom honor is due. You are to give greater esteem to pastors James, Marcus, and Dan than to pastors Piper, Mohaney, or MacArthur. You are to have greater esteem for your flock shepherd because they labor for you. John Piper doesn't know your name. MacArthur is not your pastor, right? Mahaney is not your shepherd. He's not laboring for your soul. He's not praying for you, but your flock shepherd is. Your pastor is. It's a holy dishonoring to esteem a pastor from someone else, somewhere else and a shepherd in your own church, in your own flock. Have greater respect for the elders, pastors, and leaders who labor among you, who teach you, who shepherd you, than guest pastors, preachers who visit us. Right? It's like um, esteeming babysitters over your own parents. Oh mom, that babysitter was so great. So patient with us. So wise. Cooked the best meals. Because she babysits once a month. Right? I'm with you every single day, 24-7. And you're telling me how great this babysitter was that comes like once in a while? If you're a parent, you get very angry. It'd be holy. It'd be dishonoring. Likewise in the church. Esteem these men, not for who they are, but for their work. Esteem them who labor hard. So if your shepherd is not laboring hard, right, then you take like a sea, you know, shepherd. That's how much you honor him. If your pastor is lazy, right, he's not a good example. He's not godly. You esteem and honor him to the level that he is worthy, right, by his life, by his conduct, by his labor. Turn to Hebrews thirteen seven. Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Command to believers to consider and remember, observe their leaders. Those who spoke in person the word of God to them. Command to consider the outcome of their way of life. To consider their lives and to imitate their faith. Now, this is critical. This is important. After each session or after each night, together for the gospel, we gather together, and what are we doing? We're talking about these pastors, these preachers. We're evaluating their sermons, evaluating their ministry, and being somewhat critical at times about uh, their strengths and weaknesses. And I can do that because I know that's what you guys do as well. All right, after Sunday, oh, that sermon was so long. All right. He said it was the end, He didn't end it, right? <laughs> he lied to us, he said final point, and he kept on going. Oh, Pastor James, he thinks, you know, this, and, uh, you know, all these things. That's fine, right? I mean, if you don't want the spotlight, don't be on the court, right? If you don't want to be observed, then go take a seat in the bleachers. Nobody's going to look at you. If you want to lead, that's part that's part of the program. On your part, though, is not to venerate leaders where you have a blind loyalty and you blindly follow them. Consider their lives and critically evaluate by the word of God their faith that's worthy of imitation, and the parts of their lives that are not worthy of imitation. because a standard is not man, but it's Christ. And I'll tell you honestly, there are areas of my life that are not worthy of imitation. And if you imitate me, that's to your own detriment, That's to your own harm. You should be discerning and wise enough to look at my life, look at my ministry, look at my family. And consider the scriptures and say, yeah, that part, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that's faith, I want to imitate that. But man, H, I, J, K, L, M, O, P, Q, R, S, T, V, A. That's like no good. I'm not going to imitate that. So you should be critically evaluating your elders, your pastors, your flock shepherds in love and imitate faith. Imitate that which corresponds to the scriptures. And then down to verse 17, all the while though, Obeying your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Knowing the responsibility, knowing the seriousness of our role, we have to give an account to God for your souls. Obey and submit. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right. Brother, he was saying, don't be ashamed of your leaders. Instead of being ashamed, submit to them. All right, submit to them. In the history of our church, we've never had a group of our members directly go against the decision of the elders. In our 10-year history, we've never had that except once. One time many years ago, a group of our men directly went against our decision. At that time, we we're a sports-oriented church. Right, and that's Bob's fault, my fault. It's our fault because we love sports. Right, like producers like, so our church people love sports, uh, we saw the damage that it was causing the testimony of Christ. Where summertime, where we, should, we should be busy with ministry and missions, busy with VBS and serving one another. We were, we we're involved in all these uh, softball tournaments. And so what our fear was becoming Cornerstone Country Club or Cornerstone Softball Club or Basketball Club. So we said, this year we're not going to participate in the softball tournament these guys got together behind our backs and formed a team and went out the softball church, church league and played as like a La Mirada team or something or like Bible team or something. And uh, before other pastors, man, I was ashamed. I knew these pastors. Were, James, you know you guys are coming out and you it's not sponsored by your church, but they're doing this? Well, I know. Man, it's so shameful. It's embarrassing. Right? And it's, they're not disobeying out of something like biblical or important. Like over softball, right? Can't you give up softball and just, you know, the ministry, right? Man, at that time, it was painful that they would overtly go against our decision over a dumb thing like softball it was ridiculous and it didn't bring us joy and showed us what was in their hearts, right? They loved these games more than the church and more than the leaders. The writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. These are men where leadership is hard, impossible. They're doing their best. They have, a, they have to give an account before the auditor of who is Christ. Make their ministry, make their work a joy, not a burden. It will be of no help to you. Right. A few more applications and I promise we'll close our, our sermon. All right, maybe two or three, three more, I'm not lying, three more. Um, before you can attempt to set aside shame and commit to suffering, you have to deal with your fears. You have to deal with your fears. You can't hope this fear will go away. Your anxiety and... The cowardly spirit will just dissipate over time. You have to apply the gospel. You have to apply... Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and salvation. What can mere man do to me? You have to have so much fear of God that there is no room for fear of man in your hearts. You have to deal with self-love which produces fear. You have to deal with pleasing man and pleasing others which is all centered around self-centeredness if you're going to have a shot at not being ashamed and have an opportunity to suffer for Christ. If fear is not dealt with in our hearts, we will not even get to the batter's box to have an opportunity to show the honor of Christ. We'll not even get the opportunity to swing our bats to to stand and suffer for Christ. We will cower long before. We need to deal with this fear of being shamed, fear of suffering, fear of losing control by applying the gospel. Next, How are we to suffer for the gospel? First of all, it has to involve the gospel of Christ. Somehow be involved with propagating the gospel. We can't be passive. We must be proactive. And going after every opportunity to somehow in our lives advance the gospel of Christ. Praying for missionaries, giving to the church for the ministry of the gospel, encouraging missionaries personally, writing them, calling them, serving them, living a lifestyle of the gospel. All right. I mean, Our church has had the privilege of seeing this done, uh, modeled right before our eyes. Several years ago, we had a couple who was getting married, and they said, no gifts for us. Just give us money, and all the money will go towards the underground church in China. Man, what? How they are suffering for Christ. I'm sure it was hard for them. I'm sure it was doubly hard for the wife. Man, I could have used a nice toaster, right? I could have used those, you know, a crock pot or something. I said, no, we want to be involved with the gospel. Give us money. We want to give it all for missions. I, another family, they had their, a birthday for their child. One year of birthday, invited friends and family is that all the gifts that we receive, we're going to give to Olive Crest. Our foster kids. And they'll, let the, they'll, they'll know it's from Christians who love the gospel. Right? And somehow we need to creatively be involved with the gospel ministry and not using our friends and church for our own personal ends, but using the church and our friendships for the personal end of the gospel of Christ. And then finally, I'll close with this. You must preach the gospel. You have to preach the gospel. To suffer for Christ means you have to preach the gospel. This idea of lifestyle evangelism. Uh, The president of Jews, the founder of Jews for Jesus said, the worst advice he ever got as a young Christian was, don't preach the gospel to his family, just live the Christian life. And then his dad died without hearing the gospel. And he said, that's the worst advice I ever received. And I regret it to this day. No man can be saved by general revelation, by God's creation. The world needs special revelation to be saved. The gospel of Christ. They need to hear the gospel to be saved. Likewise, people, in our members of our family, our neighbors, our friends, strangers, they cannot be saved by seeing the gospel in our lives. It might prop up the gospel when we preach it, but by seeing it, no one can be saved. The only way they can be saved is if we live a life worthy of the gospel, but we proclaim the gospel with our lips. And that is how sufferings will come. That is how persecution will come. That is how you will offend people through the gospel of Christ. And so you preach the gospel, your family members slander you, they insult you, they revile you, your neighbors are angry at you, your friends separate themselves from you, call you names. Blessed are you for you are experiencing the fellowship of suffering with Christ as a Christian. We, we, We must take risks risks for the gospel, right? Risk relationships, risk jobs, right? Risk relationship with family members so that we might be found worthy, and we might suffer for the gospel all to its glory. Lord, we are so thankful to you for the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, where infinite mercy has been poured out upon us, unworthy, undeserving souls. Lord, um, how are we to respond? We're to respond by cherishing these truths that have saved us, living lives worthy of it, and by proclaiming with our lips the gospel of Christ not by outsourcing it to others, to pastors or preachers or to ministries, but ourselves, being mouthpieces of God, proclaiming these wonderful truths, the good news of salvation, knowing that by Your sovereign choice, You will save Your people and hold them to the end. We pray that You would, by the power of God, hold and keep us, that you would cause our eyes to be fixed on the cross and thereby our hearts to be fueled to minister the gospel and suffer for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.